Oh my, just so many business podcasts out there. How can I possibly know where to begin? Here at Intrepid Business, we are about stripping away all of the usual boring fluff and instead focus on showcasing real people doing real business, achieving amazing things. The ones truly changing the world, the instigators making a dent, the people changing how we do sales and marketing, leading innovation, the people redefining leadership. But who are these people? Why do they do what they do? How do they do what they do? Find out on Intrepid Business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Intrepid Business. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm really excited today to be talking with Charles Morgan, the former CEO of what I deem to be the first real big data company. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Charles, author of the book, Matters of Life and Data, Remarkable Journey of a Big Data Visionary Whose Work Impacted Millions, Including You. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Joe. So great to have you here. Would you take a few seconds and inform the audience about you and your background, Charles? Joe, I was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is a place you've probably heard of, just on the edge of Indian Territory. I was born in the 40s, during the middle of the World War II, and my father was a traveling salesman, and my mother was the daughter of a, a wealthy wholesale hardware magnate in Fort Smith, if there could be such a thing. I was at uh, an early age in love with mechanical things, and so I grew up loving cars and uh, taking things apart and just learned how to weld when I was 14, and I always wanted to race cars, so I was kind of a crazy mixed-up kid, but I did decide early on that I wanted to be an engineer, so I did uh, eventually after, uh, you know, just a little sidebar, Joe, is my, my mother was very worried about me, and she insisted I go to a liberal arts school for a couple of years <laughs> and get a little better rounded. She said, Charles, I'm, I'm really worried about you. You don't spend enough time with girls, and you don't spend enough time doing social things, so she made me do things like cotillion when I was in school and made my mother insisted that I go to Sewanee, the University of the South, for a couple of years anyhow. And then I came back and went to the University of Arts. I got an engineering degree and mechanical engineering. And, you know, I couldn't find an engineering job that sounded interesting except with IBM, which was computer engineering, which I knew nothing about, of course. <laughs> nothing about. And just almost instantly fell in love with computers and software development and it's just a lifelong passion that I've had. I stayed with IBM five and a half years and then joined a company. I'm always called the founder. It's too complicated to say I'm not. I really wasn't the founder, but I I can say I founded the modern company. It was a very small, little bitty computer services company, and I mean tiny, and I joined it with a very good friend of mine who was racing motorcycles with me, a guy named Alex Deed. So... No, I couldn't. I couldn't afford to race cars, but I could afford to race motorcycles, and so I did that as a beginning. Of course, I wrecked my knees, both collarbones, and busted up my feet. But other than that, it was a great experience. And so I 
joined Axiom in 1972, Joe, and I was there 35 years. And we started a little bitty company with when I joined, it had 20 or 25 people. And when I left, it had 7,000. So we were in about 12 countries. So it was quite a quite a ride. It was, and now I'm in a mobile technologies company called Privacy Star. We're Technically, the company is first to rhyme, but we do business as Privacy Star, and we have mobile applications, and we build mobile databases and mobile solutions that allow you to block calls, identify debt collectors and scammers, and as you know, I was interviewing somebody from the UK, and you know, it's nuisance callers over there. Right. <laughs> so we blocked. We blocked. We're actually building a solution for British Telecom right now, and we're working with AT and T, T Mobile, and and we've got about forty five, fifty employees here, and we're just about to move into a bigger quarters in Little Rock, Arkansas. So I still live in Little Rock, and I live there with my wife. I've become a downtown dweller, so I live on the nineteenth floor of a condo building so outstanding charles that might have to be the best uh, background overview we've ever had on our show thanks so much for all the great detail but you're here today to talk about your book matters of life and data i've recently finished the book and just really enjoyed it can you tell us why you wrote it and what what people will find out when they read it well the first thing is I, i was prompted to write the book Primarily because over a period of 10 years, I must have had 100 people say, when are you going to write your book? And I always say, well, I'm not going to write a book. My brother's an author. I can't really write that well. And he's a head of the creative writing part has been at the University of Missouri and editor of the Missouri Review. So I'd watched him struggle write books. And, you know, he, you know, he, it was a lot of work. A lot of work and, 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 and low pay, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, sir, I do know that. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like being a radio personality. You, <laughs> you, know, you work hard and don't get paid much. Exactly. But anyhow, anyhow uh, I, 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 was, I, I continued to be encouraged. And after I retired from Axiom in 2008, some of the later people came to me and said, this story is never going to be told if you don't tell it now because – you guys are all getting older, and I guess they thought I was going to kick the bucket any minute now. <laughs> so they said, you better write that story now. So finally, I was encouraged to do so, and I looked around for somebody that could help me put it together. And I talked to several people and finally hooked up with a guy named James Morgan, who had written several books himself of the similar kind and helped people write books, including Clinton's mother's book, Kelly. What's her last name? It's went blank. But... He was an experienced writer and been in Little Rock. He was an editor in Little Rock, and and for almost 20 years, he was editor of the Playboy Philosopher. So he was a good guy to help me. And and we just started doing what we're doing right now, and I started creating tapes, and we created about 2,000 pages of manuscript. Said nobody's going to read two thousand pages, Jim. Let's see if we can now make this into something that somebody might read. And we worked for a couple of years and came out with something that I'm pretty proud of, actually. And so I really basically wrote the book to tell my story and tell the story of Axiom. 
I don't think you can tell the story of a business without telling the story of the people that are in that business. And it's my experiences and prejudice and life's uh, interests that that really drove a lot of what the you know I did in the business. I was obviously. Uh, as I've already said, interested in car racing, and so I wanted to finally be able to do that, and I did. I so I took time to do that. <clears throat> I was too old; my body was too broken up to do any more motorcycle racing. But I did race cars, and I continue to be extremely involved in the technology of Axiom, and we built cloud computing and big data things, and a whole bunch of advanced database development, database management tools, and it turned out we built the ones that worked the best for the big marketers like Citibanks and Chase Banks and Allstate Insurance and General Motors and on and on. The big companies who had a lot of big data problems came to Axiom as the best resource to get the work done. As I say, in the end, we had 7,000 people doing this around the world, and it was a lot of fun. And to get to all those places, I had to, of course, I had to have jet airplanes. Joe, how can you get <laughs> to all these places without having a jet airplane? So that was my excuse, and I'm damn sure sticking to it. But anyhow. That's awesome. uh, well, Charles, we, it's a good segue. In my introduction, I said that many deem Axiom to be the first real big data company. Can you yeah. tell the audience what you were thinking when you left IBM to join this new venture and how you thought you would use data in a whole new way? I didn't have a clue. Joe, come on. I just, <laughs> you know, I wanted to build a nice company. I want, you know, the only thing I knew at that time is I had watched and observed companies that I worked with. I observed successful companies and not so successful companies. And what struck me was the successful companies had good people and strong leadership. I had one fantastic example, and that was Sam Walton at Walmart stores. I tried to I actually tried to buy stock in Walmart. I'd worked with them in Northwest Arkansas when they had seven stores, some help selling their first computer. And I just said, that Sam Walton is some kind of leader. He had his roll top desk right in the middle of everybody. He didn't have a, he didn't even have a private office. He had good people and he had good ideas. Everybody knew who the boss was. I said, that's a great model for a leader. And so I also knew from IBM experience that you had to have smart people and IBM was successful. And so I knew about leadership and I knew about getting good people, but I really didn't know what we were going to do in terms of big data. It really came later as we were trying to, Joe, trying to figure out what is our competitive advantage going to be. We first tried to make a business in politics and political direct mail and, and doing, we actually did land development stuff. We worked with several of the land developers who were then the biggest mailers in the, if you would, in the South, our part of the world. There really weren't any big mailers other than land developers and, and politicians that did anything that we could really get our teeth into. But it soon became obvious that we had to find a bigger market. And so I got a new suit and a new briefcase and went to New York <laughs> and where the center of direct marketing was. And I was fortunate to find some really good application in data management and list processing. And we were able to sell 
some early applications for that in in the New York area. Our success really exploded when we finally closed a database marketing application with, of all things, Citibank in 1983. So that really started our focus on what I will call large-scale database marketing. It became obvious at that time that that's where the big opportunities were, and we need to get really good at that. And out of that desire, we built a lot of advanced technologies, which eventually became cloud computing, grid computing, big data. I honestly think the, the first really sizable you know what big data is, Joe, right? Yes, sir. It's a lot of data. <laughs> exactly. It's a, big, it's a big mess of data. So the big mess of data that we had for Citibank was assembling credit card, I mean, sorry, credit information from the credit bureaus and other publicly available data like data that's available from the telephone directories, white page directories, and from the Bureau of Census and sources like that combined all together to create one big marketing database. And that big marketing database kept growing and kept growing and kept growing. But even the early ones, they were doing mailings that would be working with at least 200 million records of all that kind of data about the U.S. population. And ultimately, those databases were built from billions and billions of records. And to do that, we had to have new technologies to do it. And one of those new technologies we had to build was what eventually we would call cloud computing. You know what our cloud computer was, Joe? It was 20,000 PCs connected together. 20,000. Yeah, eventually it was more than that. It was, I think, when I left, we probably had 40,000 PCs or more all connected together. We called it a grid of all things because that's what it looked like to us. But it was just rack after rack after rack of PC chassis that or multi-core chassis. With that, Intrepid Business will return with our guest, Charles Morgan, after this quick break. We'll be right back. program is brought to you by Miles Finch Innovation, LLC, a creative consultancy that is passionate about ideas, imagination, and facilitating a culture of innovation. Miles Finch Innovation helps companies navigate the messy territory of corporate innovation. They're strategic thinking partners who can help you get unstuck and identify creative solutions to your toughest challenges. They also love to train and speak on the subject of creative leadership. Learn more about how they can help you at milesfinchinnovation.com. Miles Finch Innovation. Idea-centric. Strategically driven. Humanly conscious. And we're back with Charles Morgan, author of the book, Matters of Life and Data. Charles, somewhere in that evolution you described, you and your team figured out privacy was going to be an issue. Yep. Can you talk about that, how you figured it out, and then what you did? Because well, you guys were really at the forefront. 
we were, well, we did a quarterly planning meeting, and all those quarterly planning meetings, we would say, what do we need to focus on? What do we need to build? What strategy is going to really build a future for us? And then we always thought about what threats did we have. And one of the threats that we identified early on was, hey, we've got all this data, and what if we have a breach? What if somebody even inadvertently misuses the data? What if one of our people steals the data of our customer? I mean, literally could put us out of business. So we said, how can we fight that? How do we combat that? And we came up with initially the idea that we had to do a lot more education of our people, and we had to do a better job of understanding the things I just described. Well, who was going to lead that effort? And I had been on the direct marketing board of directors, and in that I discovered that the Direct Marketing Association really didn't care about privacy. It didn't get really give a damn about that sort of thing. Right. And so I ended up chairing that organization, but I was the biggest pain in the ass to the Direct Marketing Board that they ever had because I insisted that we change some of our practices, what our acceptable practices in, in direct marketing. But it was really just to protect not just the consumer, to protect the companies like ourselves. But first and foremost, I had to figure out how to protect Axiom. And one of the things that we did, I, in 1991, uh, created the Office of Chief Privacy Officer. And that person who was put in that job was Jennifer Barrett. And Jennifer was the first Chief Privacy Officer in the world. There's been some debate about that, but I think without a doubt, she was the first Chief Privacy Officer in the world. And she has subsequently been all over the world. She literally spends, I talked to her two days ago now, and she literally spends two weeks out of the year traveling the world. And I do mean the world. She'll be in China, Europe, UK, meeting with companies and governments and association she's on various commissions european something or other this and i don't know uk that but she has been a leader in that field for now going on 25 years and that is the thing that the other thing we did to protect axiom and one of the one of the reasons we did that was we found some of the companies that we worked with didn't even know what good practice was. Right. We found, for example, Fair Credit Reporting Act does not allow you to mine credit data to try to figure out what new products you ought to build. You can't do that legally. And well, some of the people in the banks would ask us to do stuff, and when we figured out, Sometimes it wasn't even illegal. My, sometimes it just wasn't a good idea, and if it was ever discovered by a consumer, they wouldn't like it. And other times they were suggesting they do things that are actually illegal and because they, they were ignorant. It's not like they were doing it because they were trying to do something illegal. They just didn't know. They didn't know what they didn't know, and their young marketeers were responsible for making a budget, and they saw a way to make a budget and or grow their revenue, and they would do something. And having a chief privacy officer who would go around briefing these companies and playing watchdog probably saved us and our customers more than once. 
It's interesting, Charles. You know, I went to Accenture after I was at Capgemini for a while, and one day they gave everybody new job titles, and they called me a technical architect. And (laughs) I got promoted into that position. And the reality was, as I'd been an architect for 10 years, they just didn't have a word for it. That's right. And that's how I kind of see as I read your book. And, you know, I've really studied big data, especially big data in healthcare. You guys yeah. were putting the pieces together, like a technical architect pieces together. And one day they came up with the term big data, but you had to bet out cloud computing and privacy yeah. and massive amounts of data and how to share it and how not to share those massive amounts of data. So uh, reading your yeah. book and all these little side stories you tell about the pieces has just been fascinating, I think. Well, it was a learning experience for us at the time. We didn't know what we didn't know initially, but we genuinely, genuinely tried to stay ahead of the problems, tried to anticipate things that could be good and anticipate things that could be bad. And data breach, you said data, there are a lot of things that could have damaged our company. How long do you think it would take Citibank to shut us down if they thought we were stealing their data. Yeah. I mean, about, as we we say, a New York minute, right? (laughs) Or second. One of the other fascinating stories in your book was how Axiom helped the U.S. government in the wake of 9-11. What can you tell us about that? I know you were involved firsthand, and you really dove in personally on that one. Well, three days after 9-11, the Department of Justice, the FBI, published the co-conspirators names and i mean it was not hours later that a young guy named jonathan walked in my office and said i think i found five of these guys and i went you found who who, what five what (laughs) (laughs) and uh, he said yeah he said i we looked in our infobase database and I hadn't looked in any of the other databases yet, but I'm sure they're going to show up in some other places because they show up pretty prominently in our InfoBase database. And it looks like we can see a lot of guys they were associated with. So I said, well, let's be sure we know what we're talking about. Let's go off half-cocked here. And then in the meantime, we figured out who we needed to call, and we were told to get in touch with the FBI. And one thing led to another, and, before we knew it, we had six international terrorists, specialists from the FBI on site at Axiom. We put together a team of 25 people, and we took an, a, an underutilized server, a large server we had, and moved it uh, to dedicate it to figuring out all we could figure out about those guys. And so for about six weeks, we were absolutely buried in I I was kind of the head investigator we got data uh, subpoenaed from Citibank some other banks we got data subpoenaed from the credit bureaus uh, TransUnion in specific so we had TransUnion data Citibank data we had some airline data unfortunately some of the airline data was not properly subpoenaed and they gave it to us anyhow and that airline got in some trouble later quite on the QT had a tape file delivered to us which was sort of in the following context we're going to give you a lot of data 
about people going in and out of the United States from Middle Eastern countries over the last seven years. You can't say where you got it or how you got it, but we want you to match it up to this other data you've got. And boy, that was interesting too, because that data, we didn't have a clearance to even see the tape, much less the data <laughs> on the tape. So we blended all that in with our other data, and out of that arose an incredibly fascinating picture, because we could see not only the conspirators, we could see where all they lived, who they lived with. It allowed us to identify some guys that had been with them in several locations. One of them, as I recall, was the shoe bomber who we were able to tie back there were locations in chicago new jersey and florida we found a guy who was coming in and out of the country almost monthly he actually owned a house in the washington dc area he always gave as his destination a different washington area hotel and of all things he had two uh, passports and different visas. His two passports had just one digit number and his date of birth and his passport number, assuming computers wouldn't be smart enough to pick that one digit difference up. Mm. And so the kicker was this guy owned a car. Guess where that car was registered? That car was registered to Muhammad Atta's address in Florida. And this guy had a house at uh-huh. once see whoops (laughs) whoops (laughs) so it was that link i don't think there's any question this guy was currying money in to them in chunks that he thought he could get through so they didn't send it through the banking system so he was probably currying cash in from saudi arabia As a result of all this helping of the government, I know you guys learned a lot about what I'd probably say are our lack of capabilities at that time, really mining data. you think we've come a long way since then? I do. I think some of the suggestions that we made right after 9-11 to Cheney directly, uh, they were listened to along with others. Obviously, we were not boys in the wilderness at that time after all the problems the government was woefully inadequate. Joe, to say they were incompetent would give them too much credit. Of the six guys that were in Arkansas, there there were top specialists. Three of them did not have and did not use computers at all. They were specialists on knocking on doors and interviewing people. The other three had computers. All three of the computers were at least seven to ten years old. Only one of them had any even moderate computer skills. So basically, they were the old knock-on-the-door, interview-the-bad-guys technology. And the government had absolutely no ability to look at its own databases and find out the stuff that we found out. I tried to brief the guys, and we even briefed the people at Justice, the head of the Department of Justice, as well as the head of the FBI. And they were... Uh, almost baffled by the terms and the descriptions that we gave of what we did or what we were going to do. I came away from that experience saying our government is woefully incompetent in these areas and we've got to build expertise. Now, no question we have with the NSA. I think they didn't unfortunately follow some of our key suggestions that we had about how you 
protect this data from misuse. They they did have a process, but it wasn't all that good a process. They had a court lo- overlooking the data. I think the guys at the NSA think they have done nothing and, and would do nothing wrong. They think they're protecting the, the country, and they want to protect everybody's privacy. And But I think they collected too much data, and they didn't do a very good job of uh, setting up the right set of physical protections. Very interesting. Well, so far we've had a, just a great big data history lesson, but your book has much more. Tell us a little more about what we haven't talked about yet that's in your book that is going to get someone to go right out to Amazon and get one shipped to themselves. Well, Joe, one of the things that I tried to do in the book was write a business book without it being a business how-to book. I have had people come up to me and said, that's the most fun book I've ever read. I've never, my, all the stories so interesting and all those things about all those people and things you did and racing. And I was really interesting. And I've had just literally as late as this morning, I got a text from somebody who just finished it, uh, basically saying, you have written a great business book. And I try to outline what I consider the key elements of, of building a successful business. And one of those, obviously, is hire good people, have a leadership that conveys a, a clear, concise plan to everyone, do continuous planning, continue to refine and adjust your plans as the world around you changes and the tools that you have to use. Computers get faster. You have big data that you can apply and things not to do. Don't take risks that are crazy. Don't keep betting your company on something unless you have no choice. We bet our company once, but without that bet, we were pretty much out of business. And, you know, I put everybody on a half salary and said, if we don't make this thing work, we're done. Well, we made it work, but that was a point of no return. We had no choice, but I always hate to see people and, and companies say, well, if this doesn't work, it's going to wreck us. We're going to invest every last dime. We've got to do this, and that often happens with startups, and sadly, a very few of those make it. Most of them run out of money or uh, resources to be able to pursue that idea, even if it is a good one, if you got the resources to pursue it. So don't take inordinate risks. Be sure you have good people and continuously revise good plans. And remember, last thing I'll add is I try to get this across. Building business is a lot of hard work. It's not easy. Doing an entrepreneurial startup like we effectively did at Axiom was tremendously hard work. And we have done, I've done other startups, and the one I'm in right now, we've been at it for seven years at Privacy Star. And fortunately, I had a lot of personal resources, money that I had made at Axiom, or this thing would have gone belly up. But it's now a very successful company. But we do regular planning. We have hired the best people that I could possibly locate. Uh, we have great, so we have great talent. We we're continuing to build really good technology and tools. We think we've got a competitive advantage, 
and a new fast-growing space, just kind of like we had at Axiom. Axiom dove into the direct marketing world when it was just growing and exploding because of computing. And now uh, the business I'm in right now, Privacy Star, is exploiting mobile technology and the growing technologies available in mobile computing that we are taking advantage of. So building a business is hard work. You gotta have good people that are working together and believe in each other. Leadership is key, planning is key, but at the heart of all that are the people that are in the company, period. The people are it company, successful company is all about having successful people. Absolutely. Charles, I wanna thank you for writing the book. I know you said you debated it for a while. All the all objectives you said you had you definitely achieved with me. Once I started reading it, it was almost like the combination of a novel and a business book to me. I just couldn't put it down. You tell personal stories, where you were in your life and how they affected the makeup of what was going on in the business. And it made it extra interesting. Because I am from Arkansas, I'm a Razorback. It made it even extra interesting. But I'll tell you, as a part of this job where I interview 20, 25 authors a year on the best business books, this is my number one this year, and it's just a really fantastic Thank you very, so thank thank you very much. I really appreciate your comments, and uh, that's exactly what we were trying to do. We, we did planning on this book, a lot of talk about this book, what we wanted to do. And if we achieve what you just described for you, that's bullseye for what we were trying to do. So I, I sincerely appreciate your comments on that. Well, Charles, you definitely hit the bullseye for sure. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I just want to tell our audience to go to www.mattersoflifeanddata.com to learn more about Charles's book and how to order it. It was a great pleasure to have Charles on our show, and I hope you'll go straight out there and check out the book. And that wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Charles Morgan, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Business.